0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Samuel chapter 23, and if you can, please stand when you get that. I apologize for accusing you of stealing my Bible, it was on that bench over there. So. First Samuel chapter 23. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? The Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord once again. The Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keil to besiege David and his men. We're so thankful for your word this morning. So thankful for the praise and worship. So thankful for the fellowship of the saints. All good things come from the Father of lights. I pray, Lord, you take your word today. Let it make a difference in our lives. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank You, you may be seated. Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman told of a distinguished minister who preached very strongly one time on the subject of sin. After the service, one of the church officers came to counsel with him in his study. Dr. Howard, he said, we don't want you to talk as openly as you do about man's guilt and corruption. Call it a mistake, if you will, but do not speak so plainly about sin. The minister took down a small bottle and showed it to the visitor. He said, do you see what it says on this label? It says strychnine. And underneath in bold red letters are the word poison. Do you know, man, what you're asking me to do? You're suggesting that I change the label. Suppose I do and paste over, over it the words essence of peppermint. Don't you see what might happen? Someone would use it not knowing the danger involved. And would certainly die. He finished by saying. So it is too with the matter of sin. The milder you make the label. The more dangerous you make the poison. When I read that. It made me think. It seems that very few people. Like to talk about sin these days. But sin in itself. Is a very interesting word. A century ago. Our vocabulary was rich with synonyms for sin. Words like iniquity transgression, depravity, and reprobation. Did you know that the Greek New Testament has 33 different words just for that word sin? Apparently, we once knew our way around that concept, but now it's hardly even considered by most people. And you can learn a lot from a society by digging around through their heap of discarded words. These days, you don't hear people worrying about their depravity at the water cooler. Did you know that a few years ago, the Oxford Dictionary wanted to completely remove the word sin from the dictionary? Supposedly, it was an old decrepit word that one writer described this way, as sitting in the corner of the vocabulary parlor, rocking in his chair, and talking about the good old days. Now we call them mistakes, or slip-ups, or a little boo-boo. And who knows, the human race may one day wipe the word sin from its dictionaries, but we will never wipe it from our soul. It will still crack its whip on the world's population of the slaves of sin, just like it has always done. Now, one of the worst aspects of sin is that it blinds us to all reality. We're going to see a perfect example of that this morning in the life of Saul. Look at verse 1 with me. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. The key idea in the long narrative that occupies the last third of the book of 1 Samuel is the sufferings of David on his painful path to the throne. On every page from chapter 18 to the end of the book, we see David suffering and others suffering because of David. At this point in his experience, David will write three psalms the 27th, the 31st, and the 54th. Now, others may have been written at this time, but these three sum up the spiritual conflict that was going on in David's heart. They show what was shaping him to be a man after God's own heart. Now, we see that the spies of both David and Saul were active in the land. And David's spies reported that the Philistines were attacking Keilah. Now, Keilah was a border town in Judah, about 12 miles from the Philistine city of Gath. And some 10 miles west of the force of Herod, where David and his men had been camping. Now, situated that close to the enemy, Keilah was extremely vulnerable especially during the harvest season when the Philistine army was searching for food. What the Philistines would do was they would wait until the people of Keilah had done all the work of growing and harvesting the grain, and they would swoop down at the last minute and steal all of it, kind of like the IRS does today, but that's a different sermon. So you can appreciate the terrible dilemma this put the town of Keilah in. Now, there are reasons we will touch on shortly for thinking that the beginning of chapter 23 takes us back a little bit in time. I think it likely that what we are about to see is what was taking place with David at the very time that Saul was arranging the slaughter of the priest that we studied last week. If you remember, 1 Samuel chapter 22 ended with Abiathar reaching David. We will catch up to this point sometime in verse 6. The reason I think that is in verse 9, David tells Abiathar to bring the ephod, which is used for determining God's will. Yet there is no mention of David using the ephod in the first four verses when David was also seeking God's will. It just seems to me that if David had had the ephod at that point in time, he would have used it as such a dangerous and critical point in our story. That does bring up an interesting question, though. If David didn't have the ephod, how did he hear the voice of God. As very often in the Bible, we are given a particular information about the manner of the way in which God speaks. There have been times in history where God has spoken in an audible voice. That was often the case in the book of Exodus, and it was apparently also in the Boy Samuel's experience. It could have been the case here. We just don't know. The means by which God spoke, however, is less important than the fact that he did speak and what he said. Since the departure of Samuel, Saul had been unable to receive guidance from God, even though he had tried. If you remember, there was an occasion when he asked almost the exact same question that David just asked. In 1 Samuel 14:37, Saul asked the Lord, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But the Bible says, But he received no answer. So we see that David's prayer was answered. And yet Saul's was not. Why was that? I have some reasons, I think. Therefore, we must ask ourselves, each of us this morning, why are the prayers of some people answered and the prayers of other people not? Could there be an issue of disobedience to the word of God? But first, I think it's important to remind us that God may answer our prayer by saying no to it. It may not be the answer that we want, but we must always trust that God is sovereign and knows what is best for our lives. A good example is Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians twelve seven. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there is given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I toward the Lord three times that it might leave me. And yet he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So we see Paul asking the Lord three different times to remove the thorn, only to receive no as an answer. But what was the result of God saying no? The Lord's denial of Paul's prayer caused Paul to cling to God's grace and power even more. A modern example is the late Chuck Colson. If you don't recognize that name, before he became a Christian leader, he was a decorated Marine officer and a brilliant lawyer. Eventually, he entered politics and became Richard Nixon's right-hand man. His whole life had been built on prominence, achievement, and building a reputable name. He moved in the highest circles of power. But after going to prison in the wake of the Watergate scandal, he figured his life was done. The central qualifications of his life as he knew it had all been shredded. His good name was the subject of jokes on late night TV. But when he finally came to the end of himself, God was just getting started. Here's how Colson described it. He writes, The great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison, and see the faces of the men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing that God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, achievements, degrees, awards, honors, or cases I even won before the Supreme Court. That is not what God is using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and was sent to prison. That was my great defeat, the only thing in my life I didn't succeed in. What is Colson saying? He is saying that God's power was perfected in his weakness. Now, we have touched on prayer in the past by saying that there are three ways God can answer prayer. He can answer no, slow, and go. He can say no because a yes answer isn't best for us. He can say slow as if he is going to answer it, but not at this time. And lastly, he can say go and answer our prayer in the affirmative. But regardless of the answer we receive, we need to always remember that Father knows best. With all that said, very often our prayers are unanswered because of some spiritual problem that we have in our lives. Actually, the Bible gives us a few things that will cause our prayers to be hindered, and ineffective. I'll briefly touch on a few of them. One hindrance is selfish motives. James 4.3 tells us, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your selfish passions. Now all humans are selfish. It's part of our natural nature that we naturally regard our our own interests ahead of the interests of other people. And sadly, we often regard our own interests ahead of even God himself. So the first hindrance to our prayer is our motives. We must ask with what is in accordance with God's will revealed to us in the scripture. We must ask for things that are consistent with the character and nature of God. If you ask God to kill your spouse because you are attracted to someone else, God is not going to answer that prayer. It doesn't matter how long you pray or how many days you fast, God isn't going to kill your spouse to satisfy your urges. That's the difference between Father God and the God Father. <laughs> we must only ask for things that are of our spiritual benefit for ourselves, or the person on whose behalf that we pray. I spoke to a man last week who was living in open adultery, but told me that the women, the woman he is living with, they have prayer and Bible study every single day. That is what is technically called a complete waste of time. I can assure you that God is not going to be part of that little prayer group. Now, the second hindrance is not obeying the Scripture. Proverbs twenty-eight nine says this: If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If we are not spending time immersing ourselves in the Scripture and are not obeying the things that we have learned, we should not expect God to answer our prayers. Our defiance in the life or ignoring the life-giving words of the Bible may hinder us from having our prayers answered. When we read the words of Scripture, we ask and encourage God to speak to us. Then he provides the understanding that we need to live lives that bring glory to him, and lives that are increasingly consistent with his standards of grace and holiness. It is only then that we realize the things that we truly need to pray for. But without submitting ourselves to scripture, we may not even know how and what to pray. We pray the best and most effectively when we are saturated in the word of God. Another hindrance to prayer is if we have unforgiving hearts. In Mark 11.25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father may also forgive your trespasses. Here it is clearly taught in the solemn words of Christ that Christians who will not forgive others will not be heard when they ask for forgiveness. Now, as a sermon within a sermon, just so no one misunderstands that verse on forgiveness, you understand, I trust, that in the Bible, the forgiveness of sins has two different meanings. In the first place, when a lost sinner comes to Christ and trusts him for salvation, then all of his sins are forgiven and blotted out and will be remembered against him no more, as far as the condition of his soul is concerned. And getting saved, the legal transaction is finished, and all of our sins are laid on Christ and forgiven, blotted out, and never to be held against us ever again. However, when we do sin, our fellowship with the Lord is broken Until we confess and repent of that sin. In other words, I believe if you are a true Christian, your relationship with God cannot be broken. As he began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1.6. But our fellowship with God can be broken because of unconfessed sin and unforgiveness. But of course, you parents understand this in the natural. Imagine this scene. You have just baked a chocolate cake and have told your four-year-old to not touch the frosting. Well, you leave the room to take a phone call. When you come back, to your dismay, little Johnny or Janie has chocolate frosting all over their little face. So you ask them, did you get into the frosting? They look at you, bat those sweet little eyes, and with perfect composure say, no, ma'am. They even look a little offended that you would even suggest such a vile thing. Now, are they still your child? You may wish they weren't, but they still are your child. However, until they admit their wrongdoing and that is fixed, there's going to be a break in the fellowship. But here's what I want us to see. Even though their disobedience has broken the fellowship, their relationship stays intact. I'm so thankful it is like that. Because I have lost count of times that God has had to wipe the chocolate frosting off of my face. Okay, back to my original point. When we harbor unforgiveness, we automatically hinder our prayers. Which, if you think about it, is pretty hypocritical considering the amount of times that God has forgiven us. The Christian has been forgiven for the greatest of offenses. He has been forgiven for knowingly purposely transgressing the law of Almighty God. And yet we're often slow to forgive other people even for the smallest of transgressions. But even the biggest of sins ever committed against us are nothing compared to how we have sinned against God. And God will not honor this attitude. Our ongoing assurance of pardon before the Father is in some way dependent on our willingness to forgive others. So therefore, we must be attentive to each of our own hearts to ensure that we are not harboring hatred or resentment towards other people. If we have this attitude, we should expect our prayers to go unanswered. Now, the next one is a big one that covers a lot of ground, and we kind of just touched on it with our cake scenario. It is that of unconfessed sin. Just as unforgiveness can hinder our prayers, so can sin that is in our lives that we have refused to confess before the Lord. Psalm 66:18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. So before we conclude that God has simply not heard our prayer, or that it is not his will to give us what we have asked, we need to first examine our hearts to ensure that there is no unconfessed sin This stands as a barrier between ourselves and the Lord. And God will most often reveal sin through the reading of and the meditating upon his word. That is why Bible study every day is so important. Because if we don't, sometimes the Lord will have to resort to harsher tactics if we refuse to openly come before him and confess our sins. He's even been known to reveal sins publicly. And while that may be difficult and humiliating, he does so because he loves us, and he does not wish for that sin to continue to corrupt us and to stand as a barrier between himself and ourselves. So to sum all that up, the 18th chapter of Luke says this, and he told them a parable to the fact that they should always pray and not lose heart. So Jesus goes on to share there the parable of the persistent widow. It's a parable designed to teach the importance of persisting in prayer. So it is God's desire. We know that we persist in our petitions before him. But when we ask and do not receive, we need to examine ourselves and ask why our prayers are being hindered or unanswered. Are we acting selfishly? Have we turned away from God? Have you harbored unforgiveness? Or have we ignored sin in our lives? These questions can lead us back to the word of God, guide us to an examination of our hearts, and then lead us back into communion with the Lord. Look at verse 3 with me. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David would inquire to the Lord once again. The Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. I love the honesty of David's men in verse 3. Remember, this is still very early on in our story. They have yet to be transformed into David's mighty men of valor that they would one day be. They're just not there yet. So at this point in the account, they exhibit no macho posturing or false bravado. They're more like Barney Fife than Clint Eastwood at this point in time. But you can hardly blame them. It was dangerous enough in the forest of Hereth with Saul to worry about. Was it really a good idea to pick a fight with the Philistines also? Basically, they're saying, hey, it's all we can do to survive in this cave. Now, you want us to go fight the Philistines? I think it's interesting that David's response to them was not to berate them or make fun of them for their lack of courage. Instead, he goes back again to consult with the Lord. It seems that the unwillingness of his men changed the situation somewhat in his mind. Did the Lord still want them to go and fight against the Philistines? Now, you don't get the sense that David went back because he was doubting God. I think he went back because his men's lives were on the line, and he was humble enough to think, You know, maybe I didn't hear God right the first time. But verse 4 gives us God's answer. Then David inquired of the Lord once again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise and go to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. You can't get any clearer than that. The promise already implicit in the earlier command was now made explicit. The word I there is emphatic. Fears and apprehensions were answered by the promise of God. Literally what it says is, I am giving the Philistines into your hand. But notice the close connection between the command and the promise. The, the, The command is to go and do something that would normally be terrifying. The promise changes that, though. For I am giving the Philistines into your hand. The command alone and by itself seems a little unreasonable and reckless. But if the promise is true, then the command is completely realistic. So we see in verse 5, they take God at his word and they go down and save the people of Keilah, just as the Lord had promised. You may be thinking, that's fine for David, but I'm not David. And my Philistines come in different forms. For some, it's the Philistine of loneliness. Or a besetting sin? Or the Philistine of depression? What kind of promise is there for those kinds of Philistines? If the Apostle John was here this morning, he would answer you with 1 John 4.4. It's been called the Christians 4 by 4 because sometimes we need to pick it up and whack the enemy upside the head with it. It reads, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. While God told David, he is telling you this morning, I am giving that Philistine into your hand. As I've often said, a Christian don't fight for victory. We fight from the standpoint of victory. We've already won. The Bible says even now, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. The only thing remaining is for the events to play themselves out in time. Just a quick couple of quick comments on the last verse, and then we'll disband or wreak havoc on the kingdom of darkness. Didn't mean for that to be funny. Verse 6. Now it happened, when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now earlier I had suggested that chapter 23 takes us back a little in time and tells us what was happening with David as Saul was murdering the priest. If that is right, then when Abiathar found David here, as verse 6 indicates, he came came to him after the Philistines had already been saved, or had David already saved the Philistines. <laughs> David already saved the people from the Philistines. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Had already saved the people from the Philistines. <laughs> Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> as the story goes, there is a sense that David has surrounded himself with people and tools that will lead him to God. It's as if the author wants to make very clear that David is moving towards God. And God was moving towards David. And these connections are going to set up our next section. Think about it. David now has what will be his mighty men of valor, Gad the prophet, and Abiathar the priest. We can see God building David's kingdom even in a cave. Now, incredibly, in verse 7, Saul finds out about David saying Kailah, and is under the delusion that God has now delivered David into his hand. Are you kidding me? Now you and I hear that and see how bizarre that that looks and sounds. Saul had no idea what God was doing. His comment almost makes your jaw drop. How in the world could Saul have the audacity to claim to know what God wants? He just got finished issuing the order to murder 85 of God's priests. Such is the blindness that sin brings. That's what does little or no good to try to reason with someone who is saturated in a sinful lifestyle. Just ask the housewife who rushes the kids off to school and then starts drinking at 8 o'clock in the morning. But she tells you that she has it under control. Or how about the man who spends his whole paycheck gambling but it's, it's really not a problem. Then there's the executive who snorts coke three or four times a day he assures you he can quit any time that he wants to. What do all these people have in common? Like Saul, their sin has blinded them to reality. And if they don't want help, all you can do is stand back and watch their lives spiral out of control. In closing, the following is an illustration I've used before, but I simply can't find a better one concerning the danger of playing around with any type of sin. One day, George Orwell was eating breakfast when he noticed a wasp on his plate. I'll let him tell you what happened next. He writes, I thought of a rather cruel trick I once played on a wasp. He was sucking jam on my plate, and I cut him in half with my knife. He paid no attention. He merely went on with his meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed esophagus. You have a good lunch now. (laughs) Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. That's how sin is, my friends. It may taste good, and it may be enjoyable for a season, but the whole time we are dying and don't even realize what's happening to us. This is exactly what is going to happen in the life of Saul. In verse 8, Saul gathers all the people to go down to attack David. What will happen next? Wouldn't you like to know? Come back next week and I'll tell you. And Lord, we don't want to be blinded to sin. You say, Lord, even our hearts are deceitful. I can't even trust my own heart. It's only through your Holy Spirit and walking in the Holy Spirit that I know I can live a life pleasing with you. I pray, Lord, you make that true for every person in here. Draw us to yourself. Let sin be the repugnant thing that it is. Let the sins that are in our lives be odious to us as they are to you. Open our eyes, Lord. Let us see what we're really dealing with those times that we walk away and engage in sin. That's this in Christ's name. Amen.